0: I've been uh, in the past in situations where teams were very monotone. So people with a similar background, similar sex, similar origins. You might think initially, hey, this is an easy dynamic because we all think the same. Until you find out that you run out of ideas. Until you find out that the ideas that you come up with are not earth-shattering. And when you put teams together that are... Highly diverse. You get people bring these different experiences to the table, and you find that you get to like much more creative answers and breakthrough through ideas. And usually it takes a while. It can take a couple of quarters, depending on the starting point of your team to build that diversity in the team. But once you have it, magic things happen.
1: Hi, I'm Jubin go-to-market partner at Kleiner Perkins, and this is GTMG, a show that interviews world-class revenue and go-to-market leaders to explore how they operate, think, and deploy grit every day in order to build incredible companies. Speaking of world class companies, there are more incredible startups in the Kleiner portfolio than I've ever seen. When I was operating, I would have begged to be in some of these companies. If you're listening, and we don't do sponsorships on this show, so I figured I'd use this opportunity. If you're listening and you are inspired by the stories of my guests and you want to find the next incredible ride for you, reach out to me. Let's find an amazing job in the Kleiner portfolio. Now let's get to the episode. Philippe, welcome to the show. Thank you so much. <laughs> I've been walking around my apartment this morning, Philippe, and I'm like, I want a French name. That's like so much, so much better. <laughs> it's perfect. Okay, good. Do you go by Philippe at Starbucks? Yeah, well, they write all kinds of things on the on the cups. <laughs> <laughs> I'm Jack at Starbucks, just to make it easy. Yeah. I don't even try Jubin because yeah. it's such a pain in the ass. Yeah. I often say Philippe,
0: and they check all the marks, and then they say Philip, and they're like,
1: Oh yeah, here you go. <laughs> Well, welcome to the show. If you've heard any of these before, I start them all the same way. I'll read your background back to you and then tell me what I screw up and we'll go from there. Yeah. All right. You got your master's of science in chemical engineering. How do you pronounce this? Yeah, this is
0: in Delft, University of Technology, which is in the Netherlands. Okay, awesome. You know the Delft Blue, right?
1: No, what is that? Oh, porcelain. The what? (laughs) Delft Blue
0: porcelain, like cups and plates. Oh, porcelain. Yeah. Is
1: that a thing in the... That's, that, that's
0: big global. Is it? Yeah, yeah, yeah.
1: Oh, you can see how fancy I am. You did that from in the late 80s, early 90s. Then you went to GE in their technical leadership program and kind of a product engineer. You did four years of that. Did you go to school again? Yeah, I did my uh, MBA in okay. France in Seattle. Yeah. Uh, Got it. And then you went to Dell. You spent almost 10 years there. Yeah. Doing all sorts of jobs. Yeah. Financial controller then marketing director, then a global account director, which I think means sales. Yeah, GAM and sales director for global accounts. Okay. And then, yeah, you were the sales director for all the globals for a couple of years. Then you were really stepping your game up into leadership roles, director of EMEA for large enterprise for two years. Then you went to Vodafone, spent six years there, director of enterprise business for three years, and then MD for enterprise business for three years. Yep. Then you went to Dropbox in 2017. You started as the VP of EMEA, and you did that for a year-ish? Yeah, a year and a half.
0: And then they, they added Asia Pacific, and then it became a global role. Yep. So you did APAC for a year-ish? Yeah. Not even? And then you moved to the Bay Area? Yeah. I led the team for uh, Sales, Customer Success, and Channel for Mid-Market and Enterprise. Mm. And so we uh, moved from Ireland to the
1: West Coast. Got it. And then you went to Envoy. Yeah. You spent a little under a year and a half there. Yeah. You're the CRO of Envoy. And now July 2021, that's what, four months ago? Five, yeah. Four months ago, yeah. you're the CRO of Uncork. How bad did I do there? Uh, you did really, really well. Okay. No, that was great. All right. couple questions. When did you overlap with Thomas Hansen from UiPath?
0: Well, Thomas hired me into Dropbox. Okay. So he gave me the chance and uh, we're still uh, in in close
1: contact. I pinged him before this and I was like, dude, give me some dirt. What do you got? Like, give me some story. (laughs) Tell me something to ask him. And he said, ask him who his favorite Danish manager ever was. And I'm like, I hope he's had another Danish (laughs) manager (laughs) in his life. And then there's a fellow running sales at Hoppen. Yeah. Who used to work for you? Javi. Javi. Yeah. Is that right? Yeah, yeah. He used to work for you. Yeah. Anyway, I yeah. couldn't get dirt from either of them.
0: No, that's disappointing. <laughs> but what is amazing to see is that uh, many of the team uh, I got to work with are now in all these different SaaS companies, and many of them are doing incredibly well. So it's great to Isn't that stay cool? in contact. Isn't that cool to see? Yeah. This morning, I was texting with one of my uh, Danish AEs, actually, who is now a CRO in a, in a great company. Huh. Yeah, he's is in New York like, here. Is that the most satisfying thing for you? That is, for me, is incredibly satisfying. And that's a long-term game, but a few years you start working with a team, you hire people. Yeah. And a few years down the line, you look and you see where, that these people have gone to like amazing places. So uh, cool. Even in this building is one of the people I worked with in Dropbox. So cool. Yeah. where did you grow up? I grew up in the Netherlands. And then later on, I spent time in France. I worked for GE in France, did my MBA in France. Is Philippe a Danish or a French name? It's a French name. Okay. I'm named after my granddad, Uh but uh, born in the Netherlands. Did
1: life suck growing up or was it pretty good?
0: In my early years, life was really easy. I had a very good childhood, lots of friends doing Mm. sports. Mm -hmm. And my parents allowed me to do a lot. I just had to make sure I did my studies well. They were both in education And that was important to them. And they said, if you do that well, then you can do whatever you want. And that's what
1: I did. One of the things that struck me was that you were everywhere through your twenties and early thirties, you've been everywhere. Even now you're still moving around. Yeah. Are you constantly uncomfortable (laughs) or are you uncomfortable sitting still? Where does that come from?
0: Yeah. I can tell
1: you that it definitely wasn't all
0: planned. So life happens, right? And then you, you can choose to do things or not. Yeah. But uh, what I did know is when I was around 16, 17 is that I thought the world is my oyster. Yeah. And the Netherlands became too small. Mm -hmm. And for me, after my studies in GE, Mm -hmm. in that leadership program, that was super international. Mm -hmm. And I enjoyed that international vibe. I found it just uh, inspiring to hang out with international people. And I feel that people are not stuck to where they come from or back into their comfort zone when you're in a very international environment. And I still have so many friends from these early days in, in GE or my MBA or I have friends all over the world. And it's, it's really fun. And nowadays, it allows you to have these global careers and have all these experiences.
1: You don't have to answer this, but do you think that Americans are super close-minded? Do you think that they lack any form of worldliness? And do you think that others around the world share that perspective?
0: Well, no, I, I don't think that, <laughs> that's a nuanced statement. I think in every country, there are people who are very open-minded and, and close-minded. Yeah. Here in the East Coast, I find
1: people uh, are very open-minded and international and yeah. The reason I ask is because in the US, when you go on vacation, let's just yeah. assume you're going on vacation somewhere else and you're not going abroad, right? You could take a two-hour flight, but you're still in the same language. Yeah. In Europe... If you go on vacation, you could just take an hour flight and you're in a completely different culture.
0: Yeah. Completely. Yeah. I don't
1: know. Maybe there's something to that.
0: No, the language is definitely different. And what you're saying is true about Europe. But I've been now uh, three and a half years in the US and I find that there are more similarities in the US Mm. with Europe than I thought initially. We lived in California. I traveled to like quite a few of the states. and you see how different these states are, how different people think. Uh, Yes, the language is the same, but Mm. I
1: found that there's also very high diversity in the US. Mm. Okay, fair enough. What was your first language? Dutch. So I was watching a video of you. Yeah. And it was a fireside chat that you were giving somewhere in Europe at Dropbox. Right. And what struck me was that English is not your first language. And you're a really damn good public speaker. Better than most people that I know whose first language was English. How do you do that? Do you practice being good at public speaking? Where does that come from?
0: So the Netherlands is a small country and they were always trading in the history and very open. So you grew up and you learn these different languages. So Mm -hmm. you learn English very early. The country is very much focused towards the U.S. actually and to the UK, but it's very Anglo-Saxon. We used to have different languages in school. I had German, I had Greek, I had some French. So you have to learn these other languages. Now, at one point we did move to Germany for Vodafone and it was funny, I had to do my sales kickoff three weeks after I arrived. And my, my team was about well over a thousand people and I'd had like, I think two years German in school, but then I had to do my keynote of half an hour to this audience of 1,500 people in this massive conference room on a, on a cruise ship. And my God, I was so nervous. <laughs> and it was so challenging to- uh, You did it in German? I did it in German. Yeah, I decided to go cold Turkey because this language really matters. And German is important when you are in Germany. It's not that English oriented. So I did it in German, but it was very challenging. And You did it in German- I, I didn't took, sleep that well You beforehand. took two years of German? Yeah. And you did it in German? Yeah, so it must have been painful for <laughs> the audience. What did uh, they say? What was the reaction? They applauded me for courage. And I think that also meant that, well, keep practicing. But I did it. Dude, that's, that's ballsy. Yeah, you got to sometimes do things at the top.
1: So it actually did strike me, the quality of your public speaking. How do you prepare for that? Maybe not in German, but like yeah. in English. Yeah. Before you stand on stage for sales kickoff yeah. or you get in front of a big audience. What does your prep look like?
0: Yeah, so at one point I learned this trick that I take one page, a one-pager and I draw lines on it like a grid. And those are my 15, 20 slides. And then I write a word in every cell of the grid. And that is my key message that I'm going to tell. So at the end of you have one pager with all your messages on it. And that's your storyline.
1: I'm drawing it.
0: Yeah. And that's your storyline. And, and from there, you start to add in details. And once you have your storyline, then it's easy to tell like metaphors or to add the detail. I think sometimes get people get stuck in the detail on slide one or slide two. So you just do your storyline first. That's it. And your key messages. Now, interestingly, is what I found is that I've had times where I was actually over-prepared in public speaking, where I wanted to use certain words, and I started to almost write down my speech, and it doesn't work well for me. For me, it's better when I have certain keywords, and then can talk more freely.
1: So when you are on stage, are you only looking at the paper with the keywords, or do you have notes? So... I used to take these little cards with me
0: with notes and that got me too tied up on, in the story and I was much better without the notes. So, so just now, the words? Well, not even, not, nothing. You just memorize the storyline. Yeah, and sometimes you have a slide in the back with a few words and that's your storyline, that's it.
1: But generally you would use slides to cue you for yeah. whatever is emblematic of the word that represents the, that square of the storyline. Yeah,
0: right. And there's very little on the slide. So the keywords, that's it, and then I'll talk around it. And that's most authentic. That's most natural for me at least.
1: What about for customer presentations?
0: So I think customer presentations it's more like usually a customer conversation. Right. I think there's not many customer situations where you actually go through an entire presentation. Yeah. So I like to sit down and just talk. And these customer conversations are all about posing the right questions. Mm -hmm. And then with a high amount of listening to talking. Sometimes I use a few slides, but then I I sort of like to have a handout and just to set the scene, just we flick through them, but that's it. And then it's just a a dialogue.
1: If you were to go into a big meeting, Goldman, which is a customer of yours, and you have a rep with you, and they have the same attitude as you, hey, I don't need slides. Yeah. Would you be like, hey, you're unprepared.
0: Well, we do do extensive executive briefings. So we have a briefing document that mm. talks to what is the strategy of the company? What's the digital strategy? What are the things that they are trying to achieve? What are the pain points and what is the role that we play? And we go through that in depth. So we need to be like very, very well prepared. And then we go through like, okay, what do we want to achieve in the meeting? Uh, what are the three things? What are the three messages that we want to give? And what are the proof points of that? So there is extensive preparation
1: but it's not usually not in a very extensive slide deck. One of the things that I try to do for this podcast, it's similar, right? There's an audience, it's an implied audience. Right now it's an audience of one, but at some point it'll be an audience of whatever it is, tens of thousands of people. And so people get nervous and they really want to prepare. And I always, always remind them that there is an easy way to over-prepare for these things. And I think that the types of leaders that I want on the show are really authentic and like really genuine. And so my prep doc for you was bullshit. It was nothing. I think I gave you two- I well, you practice the name. Right? I think exactly. <laughs> but like for you, I gave you nothing. I gave you two yeah, you gave topical you two areas. I don't even know what they meant. I, my colleague, she's like, what do you want to send them? And I'm like, I don't care. It doesn't matter. Yeah. Just makes you feel good that at least I did maybe some prep. So I do think there's something to be said about over prepping. Yeah, absolutely. This is a dumb question. In your squares, Do you write your keyword in English? Yeah, always. (laughs) I find it now, if
0: I need to do a presentation in Dutch, I find that much harder. And also at home, uh, we got three kids. They were born in three different countries, in the Netherlands, in Germany, and in Ireland. And we try to speak Dutch to them at home. But as the months and years pass, they answer only in English. So even at home, our first language
1: is now English. I have a bunch of questions. I had the Duolingo CRO on, Ah. and I went on kind of my soapbox about the importance of language Mm -hmm. because I'm Persian. And so I think a big part of culture is your language. That's true. And even one generation, like my mother escaped Iran from the revolution. so Mm -hmm. She was first generation. I'm second generation. It's amazing how quickly language goes away. Yeah, It's like one generation. Yeah. Most of my cousins don't really speak Farsi. Kind of a shame, isn't it? It is. My kids
0: are gonna have the same. And we sometimes say we should try harder, but then it's also we need to let them. We pull them all around the world and
1: that's right. <laughs> well, the one good thing is that if you do learn language early on, yeah. even if you forget it, you have the muscle memory yeah. built into your brain. Yeah. Totally. So for me, learning languages is just way easier than for someone that only speaks one language. Yeah. Because for some reason your brain just becomes conditioned to knowing how to learn in that way. Were you working three different jobs in three different countries when you had all three kids? How were they all born in different countries?
0: No, that was after the other. So we moved for, when I was working for Dell and GE, I was in the Netherlands, then moved for Vodafone to Germany, then for Dropbox to Ireland, and then later on to the West Coast. That's so cool. I think the thing that is interesting of the the moving around and, and the impact that it has is that we believe that the kids and also yourself become very adaptive. And I used to have this saying about Darwin in the past that like it's not the strongest species who survives nor the most intelligent one, but the one that is actually most adaptive, that is the most open to change. So one of the things that we hope to give our kids is that they are adaptive and the world keeps on changing and the speed is only going up. And I think they will be very adaptive. So that is one of the huge benefits of moving around. I couldn't agree more with that.
1: Can I share a story with you that I had with, it was a conversation I had with the CEO of one of our portfolio companies yesterday. We were sitting in New York City in Soho for lunch and his parents had immigrated here. My parents had immigrated here. And I was telling him, "Argent, I have this chip on my shoulder that was transferred to me directly from my mom that you can't teach that immigrant desperation, you can't teach that. Right. When you come with nothing yeah, and you have nothing and you barely speak the language yeah. and you don't understand the culture and you don't have the family as a support system here, you have no way out except to work for it. And the point that I was trying to make was how do you impart that on your children? And- He said, dude, that's why I live in New York city. That's why I live (laughs) in the city. And I'm like, what are you talking about? And he's like, look, you know, she's nine. She's gonna be 12, 13 years old here. And she's gonna grow up pretty fast. There's gonna be a lot of things, sensory overload that happens. And he's kind of saying, maybe I'm right, maybe I'm wrong, but this was one avenue with which I could impart the ability to adapt in a crazy environment like yeah. New York City. Is that kind of what you're saying with, with, yeah. yeah, yeah, absolutely.
0: And then what comes from that is the name of your podcast, Quit. Yeah. Hey, yeah, you learn to overcome hurdles and overcome, go through tougher things. It's not easy when you go to a completely different environment and need to start all over again and build your social network and so on. And it makes you more resilient. And those are things that I think are important for life and also for a career. It's definitely one of the things I look for when I'm hiring people.
1: Mm. Everybody wants resilience and grit, but nobody wants to go through the process of building it, especially with kids. As you move around, I moved from the Bay Area to San Diego when I was going into high school. And looking back, it's one of the best things that happened. I had to rebuild everything, but I was pissed. Like I was not happy with my parents. Yeah. If I was in your shoes and you're doing all this moving, how do you create a or nurture an environment to soften the landing when they're forging that armor in the fire? Does the question make sense? Yeah,
0: yeah, yeah, totally. That balance is very important. If you only take them out of that comfort zone, that I don't think that provides for Stability or a great mindset. Our family is very important. So, with my wife, and we try to create a safe environment at home and be there for them and really help them. We also try to teach them that they can still remain in touch with their friends. So, my daughter's having regular FaceTime calls with her friends in the valley. And we do a number of things to help them get through the transition. But kids, I have to say, are very, very adoptive.
1: Okay, a couple questions for you. I want to keep talking about this, but I can't for time's sake. I'll probably revisit it. Question one, when you joined Dropbox, how many people were there? How much revenue? What did it look like? I joined Dropbox two and a half years pre-IPO.
0: Hmm. The company was maybe like a billion revenue at the time. And the team in, in EMEA, I joined them in Ireland, as I said, and they, the team in EMEA was maybe about 50, 70 people at the time in go-to-market.
1: And then before I even get to that, I actually have another question. On Dell, the obvious question to me, and it's such a clear parallel to the way that you live your life, you did four different, not just four different jobs, four different types of jobs, marketing, finance. How much of it is planned? How much of it is just opportunity hitting you across the face? So I studied
0: actually engineering, as you mentioned, and my thinking was that it was not so much about chemical or mechanical, but it was about being able to analyze things. And I still use that skill every day. When I started my career in GE, I actually worked in manufacturing. So I was wearing a hard hat and safety boots and working in chemical plants producing plastics. And one thing I did know is I love the team and, and the culture, but I really wanted to be closer to customers. I did not know what customers were thinking about us. And I said, okay, I want to be closer to customers. The other thing that I wanted was to work with people and to lead teams. So my long and faraway goal was Mm. to be some sort of commercial general manager. And for me joining Dell, I only asked for the first role. And that happened to be, I love the culture. Dell was uh, going from uh, 30 to 60 billion in like a year and a half at that time. So really fast growing. And I just love the culture. And by the way, I was hired by a VP of finance, who was an American, who was an ex-Bain partner. And he did offer me that role. And I said, oh, okay, I love this company. I love these people. So I'm just going to join that. I did think fp a will help me understand how companies work. And right now as a CRO, for example, understanding the financial plan and being able to align your go-to-market plan and your sales capacity with your financial plan, is extremely important. So that's another skill that I use still every day.
1: You think that's something where you shine, working cross-functionally?
0: Yeah, yeah, I, I do. And I like that because I do believe that a lot of the big levers in companies are actually cross-functional. So you need to optimize within your function. So for me, go to market. My belief is that it's interesting to work with customers because it's a culmination of everything that the company is doing is coming together in what you offer to the customer. And you either provide great value or you don't. But you don't, as a go-to-market organization, provide value alone. You're very dependent on other functions like product, marketing, and finance, and so on. And the better you can work together with these different functions, the more progress you will make. So for example, I see part of my role as a CRO and for the go-to-market organization that we are the eyes and the ears of the customer back into the organization. Mm -hmm. So one of the things I'm very focused on is helping build a great product feedback loop. And I believe in cadences. So every month we sit down together with our engineering team and our product team, and we talk through like customer insights. And we try to do that in a structured way where we quantify the insights, prioritize them, And then help make trade-offs so the engineering team can allocate the resources to the right things. And helping build this ongoing customer and product feedback loop is, in my view, really important. So I'm very focused on building a number of these cross-functional teams that work throughout the organization. And the fact that I work myself in these different functions helps with that. But there, I think, as a go-to-market leader, you can really help the company beyond your own function.
1: Practically speaking, how do you gather and prioritize the insights? What does that look like?
0: Yeah. So first of all, you pick the right team that's going to help you do that. So we went from situations where anybody in go-to-market in the past could raise a hand and say, hey, I have this one deal. I need this one feature. The problem with that is that engineering capacity is like a factory. You have a certain capacity. And once it's maxed out, it's maxed out. You can't build anything additional. So it's really important that as a go-to-market organization, you think through like, what is most important for growth? What is most important for my customers? And go through like a vetting process. So I would typically appoint representatives that are a few handpicked people. So for example, my head of customer success or my head of sales engineering and make that person accountable for prioritizing all inbound demand, And I would ask my team to bring all demand together with that one person. Then you need to have one list. There cannot be multiple lists floating around the company. That's typically what happens. Requests comes up in email and spreadsheets and in product boards and others. You need to have like one central list where you prioritize. Then I think it's important that as a go-to-market leader, you educate your team what it means to make trade-offs. You you educate them on the fact that the engineering capacity is limited. And then you say, okay, you want this feature for the following customer set. Now look at the top five. Which ones are you willing to trade off against? And when you do that a couple of months in a row, the mindset of your own go-to-market team changes. And they start to think through these trade-offs that need to be made, And you get into a groove where... Over time, more and more of the right things are being prioritized, are being built, and the result is increased customer satisfaction, increased renewal rates, and increased net retention. And you can enhance that with, for example, customer advisory boards. We've done those in the past on a quarterly basis where you bring a very select set of customers together. My optimum number is 12, and you handpick the people, and you have a dialogue. You enable basically your CTO and your engineering team to test hypothesis on the the long-term product vision and then the shorter-term roadmap with customers. And that becomes a real dialogue. And the important thing is to also then hear the tougher feedback on what's not working. And if you do this process in a consistent way, that's monthly cadence, then you put yourself in a better position. Many companies say that they are customer-centric. I also believe that there's not that many companies who truly always act in a customer-centric way. Amazon is one. But I think many companies can do better every day in in getting more customer-centric.
1: What a great framing to do that. The engineers must love you. (laughs) And it's also building a great muscle for your sales team to think outside of themselves, outside of their deal.
0: Yeah, but it's not easy. And it's not a simple trade-off. We work with very large customers like, Goldman, or Liberty Mutual or the city of New York in Ancork. And uh, those are important customers. And there will occasionally be requests where we say, okay, how do we make these right trade-offs? But it's important to understand what do you build for the vast majority of customers versus the individual customer.
1: Yep. I always zoom in on the parts of someone's resume that are short stints, especially someone like you, who's like, home run at Dell, home run at Vodafone, career couldn't be more sky high at Dropbox. And then you spent less than a year and a half at Envoy. I remember Envoy. Well, back when we went to the office, I remember using it. I was like, this is, I'll get close to the sensors and it would just automatically know who I was. Felt magical. What happened? Did you get fired? Uh, no. <laughs> Damn
0: it. It's funny because when hiring, I also look at the short stints. Yeah. So it's like, okay, what happened there? I joined Envoy and they built workplace platform software. And I joined them right after COVID had hit. And so no one was going to the office. So they were initially hit by COVID. So we set out to turn the company around and to build new product and find new product market fit. And that became actually our return to work solution. And so in the beginning, when COVID hit in March, people were thinking, okay, this will be done in like four months. That was the universal thought at the time. And so we started building this return to work solution where you could check in on the mobile app, do self-attestation, we could do contact tracing and so on. Changed our pitch, changed our entire messaging, launched an MVP, started iterating on that product feedback loop that I just talked about. And the thing actually took off. I focused my customer success team on focusing on logo retention and gross retention and so on. And initially it was tough, but then things started turning and they started turning really well. And then I think two or three months later, we actually had a fantastic quarter, probably the best quarter ever. And then we started building for, okay, what's next? And one of the thoughts was... We talked about this notion of hybrid work. So people going to the workplace a couple of times, but then working from home other times. Now everybody is talking about that, but at the time, no one was talking about that. So with the product team, we started working on the next versions of the platform. And it actually really, really took off. And so the company's flying right now and they're doing really well. The reason that I left is that we wanted for family reasons to move to the East Coast, that was reason number one. And then later on, I ran into like Encore, and found that also to be an amazing opportunity. And that's why I ended. But the Envoy is doing really, really well.
1: If they let you be in New York remote, would you have stayed? Well, at one
0: point we were on the East coast and then I ran into Encore, and Uncork is addressing a huge market opportunity in my view. They build enterprise applications. They have an enterprise application platform in which you can build applications without code. And so you use a visual interface that is drag and drop to actually build code. Why is that relevant? Because you can build enterprise-grade applications for these massive companies that you can build three times faster, 600 times fewer bucks, and as a result, lower TCO. And for many large companies and even mid-sized companies, they have an application landscape, but what they lack is agility. They are in markets that are changing fast, but because they are dependent on building code, it takes them a very long time to transform. And we can give them that agility. And we're doing that for many of these customers.
1: So let's call a spade a spade. This just feels like a bigger, longer runway for you to potentially run at this opportunity feels big for you and exciting.
0: Yeah, this is a very big and very exciting opportunity. We work with fantastic customers. The company is growing very, very fast. And yeah, we provide real real value to customers. A few weeks ago, we won a healthcare company, Mm -hmm. which is actually a fortune 10 company. I won't say who it is. But they wanted to also get more agility in one of their business processes. And we now built the first enterprise application for them in 10 weeks. And they're so excited that they're now working on the next use case.
1: You're saying like, hey, you can build your Salesforce environment in Uncork? Yeah, you could. That's crazy.
0: Yeah. Now, just to be clear, yeah. not every application takes 10 weeks. Of uh, course. There are simpler use cases, a very but complex But you're saying that case. you
1: can rewrite your HR, CRM, finance and accounting apps from the ground up designed for yourself without or inclusive of the dependencies that your own organization has. Yes.
0: With a few exceptions, you can write most software in Encore. It's incredible. absolutely.
1: So one thing that struck me about your decision-making process that I wanted to unpack is that the company has a two plus billion dollar valuation that's public It did a $131 million Series B and a $207 million Series C. And the Series A was pretty small. Well, Mm -hmm. I say small, it was normal sized for today's day and age. But at that point, you know, it's almost 400 million of raised capital at the Series C. That's a lot of dilution for a company. You're coming in as the CRO. There's going to be more dilution probably. Were you nervous about that? How do you think about that, stepping in? Because I know you thought about it.
0: Yeah. So first of all, I took a VC view on the company, especially when you're in Silicon Valley, there's so many companies out there. Here, the question number one that every VC poses is like, how big is the addressable market, right? Mm. And in this case, the market for enterprise applications is 550 billion, which is a massive market. So that's number one. Number two is, when you think about, okay, what is really happening here? In my view, this is one of these instances where a technology shift happens and you come out at the other end and the technology makes people way more productive and makes the technology way more accessible for people. So in our case, enterprise application building for the people who are doing it will be done in a way more productive way, three times faster, and it will be accessible for way more people to use that technology. And I believe in that shift. So I think in 20 years from now, we will think, okay, what were we doing with all this code? And when you talk to many customers, you hear that 80% of their spend and effort is still like in keeping the lights on and 20% in innovation. So this equation, it was the same 20 years ago when it was at Dell. And so you need technologies to break through that. And when you produce code, when you write code, it goes into the 80% because by the time you've written it, it's legacy and it needs to be maintained. And the saying is there has to be a better way. Mm. And in my view, this is the better way in our view.
1: One of the things that you talked about in that fireside chat at Dropbox was the way that you walk into accounts. So at Dropbox, you walk into account. The canonical term for this is product-led growth. You can call it freemium. There's a lot of names for it. This is the opposite. Tops down, someone goes to Uncork's website. I want a trial. And there's an initiative from the CIO. Your CEO is a former CIO that then gets pushed across the organization. Question one, is this still PLG? someone goes and gets a trial, why is that different than a bunch of users at Dropbox using it? And we invest in a lot of PLG companies. I still don't know what PLG means. Can you help me understand?
0: Yeah, it's a great question. I've been working in my past with customers of all sizes, all the way from SMB and to mid-market to enterprise. And PLG usually starts with, like in Dropbox, with very efficient motions where everything is product-led, customers come in through the website. And after a number of years, they start building a sales force. Here at Encore, we started with these very, very large customers, not even the average enterprise customer, but the largest and most complex ones. And clearly, there's a transformation component that is taking place, but then you still need the product that supports that transformation. So I think product led and Sales letter go-to-market led are different sides of the spectrum, but there's also product market fit in the middle.
1: So you need to do like both. Let me ask you this, your best rep at Dropbox, would you hire that person at Uncork?
0: Yes, I would. Because what happens in both cases is that you need to understand what the customer is trying to do, what the customer's pain points are, and then find this use case to start. That was the same in in Dropbox where there was often there were trials in small teams. But then for a larger expand that we did with the IT office, we would need to describe the use case and figure out, hey, how are we adding value here? And that's the same here. And the best reps in Dropbox were doing that. It's all about these customer outcomes and it doesn't matter whether it's that. I couldn't agree more.
1: I couldn't agree more. But if you talk to your recruiting team, yeah. I bet you they would disqualify someone from Atlassian, Slack, Loom, Figma, Dropbox, because they would say the sales motion is too different. Yeah. They can't do it. I can't disagree more with that. I just can't disagree more. So it doesn't matter. Yeah. I just want to be clear. like If you're good and yeah. you couch conversations from the customer backwards, it doesn't matter. I just don't see the difference.
0: Well, it's very interesting. So first of all, to hire great reps, for an early stage company, you need to look at a number of traits. Those are very important. And we did work in the past and looked at what are the traits of our successful sellers. And we came to four traits. And we said, it's a large company, small company, 20 years size, one year. And the answer was none of the above. Four things came out. The number one thing was curiosity and smarts. And curiosity is important for sellers to discover what are the problems that the customer is trying to solve? Trade number two was self-awareness and team player. Because the best reps are able to let the entire organization work for their customer. And they connect with the sales engineering team, with the customer success manager, and so on. And now number three and four, and they're a little bit closer together, are uh, tenacity and resilience. Or in other words, grit. Mm-hmm. And I think for an early stage company that is important and for go to market that is important for a couple of reasons. First of all, in early stage companies, you're building the brand, you're building the market, you're building your customer base. When you're in a huge company, you have a huge customer base and you can just cross sell the next product. In a smaller company, that's not the case. You have to go out with new customers and build your brand. And As a result, in early stage customers, you also do a lot of hunting. You really work on winning new logos. And you know that for every yes, there are 20 no's. And in my view, in many sales organizations, the vast majority of the sellers are actually farmers. And we look for this, really this hunting mentality for people who are able to prospect. So tenacity and resilience is extremely important. Now, those are the traits that make people successful. Now, when you deal with these enterprise customers, so that is universal. If you don't have that, you go, it doesn't matter where you are come from, whether you were a seller in SMB or an enterprise. Now, where I think there's a difference is that when you deal with these very large companies and you deal with the C C-level, you need to have, understand more about their business processes. You also need to have the presence and the gravitas to deal with C-level. And that's where you quite often see a difference in experience or even like self-confidence of the sellers to be able to deal that level. I've seen good sellers and and then we went to a very, very big CIO and they sort of lost their confidence a little bit. And so you need people who can
1: deal with these situations. And so in that framework, selling to big companies would be more important to you than having done product-led if you're a product-led company. If I gave you the option of, okay, You've sold to the Fortune 500. Let's say you're at Uncork today. Let's say I'm interviewing you or you're interviewing me. And then you have a candidate that was selling to large companies at Slack or only in the mid-market selling to tops-down organizations. You would take the person that has Slack resume but has sold into Fortune 500 before. Does that make sense or did I totally butcher that?
0: Well, I would look whether that person from Slack has these traits that we just described. Yeah. And Slack is a good company, so I'm sure they they have those. But I would, for example, ask which new logos have you been able to win? And what was your role? So what was the impact that you had? What was your track record? Because the great sellers in these other companies, they will have had those traits to be successful. Without those traits, they will also not be the best sellers in, in Slack. I also asked them, okay, how did you rank? in your team and you get surprisingly honest answers.
1: I actually agree with you. I'm always surprised by the honesty of those answers of where did you rank?
0: Yeah. And you can see, for example, hey, people went to like president's club five times. That's not for nothing. It's usually a sign that they have those traits. Can you talk about
1: active mental recovery? What does that mean?
0: Active mental recovery. Yeah. Yeah in early stage companies, but also in big companies, careers are like a marathon, not a sprint. But then we sprint every day to make our quarter, to make our year, and to work through everything that's going on. So these are intense and high adrenaline and fun roles. And to perform at your highest level every day, recovery is extremely important. Look at top athletes, top football players, top tennis players, they actually spend a lot of time on their recovery. Top tennis players sleep a lot during the day and they make sure that they have their rest. So I believe that to be able to cope with the intensity over a prolonged period of time, you need to take care of your recovery. And you can do that in in several ways. During COVID, I bought my, uh, my Peloton. Mm-hmm. For me, sports uh, work really well. I love running. Sometimes I run into people and they don't take breaks. They don't take holidays. And I say, why don't you do that? And they say, okay, I'm so busy. I say, yeah, I get that. Everybody's busy. But I believe that you need to build in the time for that active recovery. So put your breaks in your calendar for the year, spend time with friends or family or go travel or do whatever you need to do to recover. But only that allows you to keep playing at your highest level for prolonged periods of time. So I think that's important.
1: Speaking of tennis, why is Roger Federer your favorite athlete? (laughs)
0: Well, stylistically, he's a fantastic player. He's done amazingly well. But I feel that he's been able to really reinvent himself. And is back to like Darwin. When you look at the early stages of Federer, it was a lot of serve and volley. And then at one point, he ran into Nadal. He had to adjust his game to cope with that power tennis by lefty. And then later on, one of the things that was never best developed was Roger's backhand. And when you look at him now, when you look at him when he won the last uh, Australian Open, you see all of a sudden this power backhand, and he's stepping more into the field to be even more aggressive. So you see these evolutions that he's gone through as a player. And the result is that he has stayed on top so long. I I think it's 20 grand slams right now. But had he not adjusted, had he not evolved, then he would never have achieved what he has achieved now.
1: And why does that make him your favorite?
0: That's back to adaptivity. It's back to long-term success and also fulfilling your potential. I'm also driven by to see, okay, how far can I go? How can I fulfill my my full potential? And that's not only in work. That's also in family or other parts of my life. But in order to do that, you need to keep evolving. And what that comes with us is also this growth mindset or this learning mindset. So I always keep taking notes on like, okay, that went well, but those are things you could have done better. And I I take notes in my little book, but I also, yeah, read books, speak to people and think about how can I keep learning? This learning mindset and growth mindset. When I was talking just about hiring, I said the number one trait is curiosity. That is also linked to that growth mindset.
1: I'm the same way, I I love to learn. I think it's one of life's greatest joys is the process of getting better. Yeah. I think one of the things, and I was just talking to my buddy, Tom, if you're listening about this is sometimes you're just not content with what you have and where you are like right now. It's like this disease of more, not necessarily more things, but just a better version of you. Yeah. And if you always are chasing a better version of you, then there's always this thing that's never good enough as it is today. How do you balance that? How do you just have appreciation for a moment, your body type? your current job, your whatever it is, your friends, your city that you're living in, when everything is, there's something that could be improved on the horizon and that's something that you enjoy. Does the question make sense? Yeah, it makes sense.
0: They say that all great athletes have that as well, right? They win a tournament or a medal, but they immediately think of the next thing. What else is there? And I would say I don't have a magic formula for that. What I did learn early in my career is I was doing this job at GE and in my job, I was thinking about the next job. And it's actually not very healthy. It's actually like frustrating because you become a little bit impatient and so on, and you don't enjoy your current job anymore. And at one point I concluded like, okay, I need to shift my frame of mind a little bit. And when I started in Dell, I did that. I asked for the first job in Dell to come in uh, after my MBA. But that was it and the next six followed. And why? Because I was focused on my current job and I enjoyed my current job. And because I was enjoying it, I was probably doing well. And then opportunities come. That's really what I believe in. So focus on what you're doing now. Try to get really good at it. And being in the present gives you also more joy day to day. And again, you need that in order to keep running in the marathon. Uh, I'm also inspired by uh, Simon Sinek, the, the infinite game. Yeah, The goal is to stay in the game and you can only do that when you enjoy the game. And when you're always thinking about the next thing, it's then you don't enjoy the game. So you wanna, you wanna find that balance.
1: I don't know if you know who Naval is, but I'll send you the book after if you don't. He's as close to a modern day philosopher as it kind of comes in my book and his guiding light or principle for your career is do what feels like play to you but work to others. Yeah. And I think the point that he's making there is that if it feels like I actually kind of feel like I have that in my job today. If it feels like fun to you, yeah, I'm never working. Yeah. If you ask my assistant or my colleagues, they're like, you work too much. You're yeah. working too hard. Yeah. And I'm like, Am I working? And so this, like, I guess this is a job. We could go to dinner tonight. I guess that'll be me working. Yeah. Sure doesn't feel like it.
0: Yeah. Uh, I'm totally with you. There's this game element in in a job that should be there.
1: And I think to your point about the infinite game, it's a lot easier to play the infinite game when you enjoy it.
0: Yeah. Imagine that you don't enjoy it and then the game, there's no end to the game. How terrible is that? So do something that you enjoy.
1: 100%. I couldn't agree more. These days, what's your least favorite part about being a leader? What gives you anxiety? What do you worry about? As you think about how can I get better? as a leader and you think about the Delta of where you are today and the things that you want to be in the future and and what improvement could look like for Philippe in five years. What do you think about in those next five years that you get impatient to go work on?
0: Well, as I said, there are always things. So for example, this is quite a few years ago, but there have been situations where you come into a company or a role And because of your focus, you want to almost move too quickly. And when you come in, the first thing to do is build relationships because you can only get results through the relationships that you have with other people. So if you don't invest enough time for people to get to know you in the beginning or spend one-on-one time, and you start running early on, you won't get there. And so this is one of the things I, took with me in more recent starts in companies that I'll take team members out for dinner and spend time with them. I bring my team also during COVID together for them to get to know each other and for me to get to know them and for them to get to know me. So that's one thing. A thing that I'm always still working on is storytelling. We spoke about how I draft my overall stories. It's important that you find the right metaphors that brings a story to life. And I always like need to work on that When I have a presentation in my mind, that motivates me already. But standing still and really doing storytelling, describing the situation, what it smelled like, what it felt like, what it looked like, I always work on that. When stress levels go up, yeah, let's go back to like sports, family, friends, re-energize. That is important.
1: Active recovery.
0: Active recovery. I tend to be a good sleeper and not worry too much. Mm. But there are moments where, okay, you lose a deal and you go, wow. Wow. We needed that one or Mm -hmm. that happens, but stay close to yourselves and keep moving forward
1: one step after the other. How do you manage your time? I'll be specific. Well, you manage a global team now and when you're at Dropbox, you're managing most of Europe. HQ is in the US. Yeah. So you have calls with the US late at night or whatever it is. And then with your team first thing in the morning and there's disparate time zones even within Europe and APAC. You could be on calls literally from 6 a.m. to 10 p.m. Yeah. Especially with a team, you know, 50, 100, more than that, people. Yeah. How do you manage your time?
0: So what I do is I spend time on weekly planning. So I will write down my to-do list and my top five and really think about it before the week starts. And I believe weekly planning is better than daily planning or monthly planning. A week is a good time frame. What it allows you to do is... You need to put the right cadences and rhythms in place for yourself, but also for your team and for the company. So there are set meetings that come back. So for example, obviously I will have a regular forecast and pipeline meeting. I will also have a regular OKR meeting to work on the few key initiatives that we drive for the quarter or for the half year. So those are like sort of anchors. But then around it, you need to allow for a lot of flexibility to stay agile. Uh, Things come up, uh, there will be customer escalation. There will be, hey, can you jump on this hiring panel? And you need to allow that flexibility to happen in order to act with speed and to be agile. The other thing is that you want to be very thoughtful about what are the essential meetings? Where do you spend time in meetings? But not more. So you think about duration, about frequency, but then you allow your team to spend time with customers or to do other things. It's easy to burn too much time in meetings. And global has an interesting dynamics. Uh, When I was on the West Coast, pretty much the only time we could have a global meeting with my team was at 2 p.m. West Coast time, which is our person in Japan would be at 6 a.m. in his bathrobe, having his camera off. In EMEA, people would be at 10 or 11 in the evening. And it's tough because they're they're, they're tired. So also there you need to balance how often can you do that. If you do that a couple of times a week, people get burned out. So you want to find a balance. Okay, where do I need to have a true global meeting or where can I break it down in like regional meetings? But you want to be thoughtful about giving your team room to act and not suffer from too much meeting burden.
1: You said something that resonated with me. I just wanted you to double click on it. I believe in the meritocracy of ideas and the ideas will be more diverse when the teams are more diverse. It sounds simple, but it's actually profound. I'd love for you to tell me more about that.
0: Yeah, I've been uh, in the past in situations where teams were very monotone. So people with a similar background, similar sex, similar origins, You might think initially, hey, this is an easy dynamic because we all think the same until you find out that you run out of ideas, until you find out that the ideas that you come up with are not earth shattering. And when you put teams together that are highly diverse, and so I've had teams with 50% female leadership, people coming from many different countries, different backgrounds. It could take a bit longer to find the groove, but you get people bring these different experiences to the table and you find that you get to like much more creative answers and breakthrough through ideas. And usually it takes a while. It can take a couple of quarters, depending on the starting point of your team to build that diversity in the team. But once you have it, magic things happen. So I'm focused on that. Super cool. It's interesting because right now we know know that the the labor market is very tight. A lot of companies are looking for diverse talent and you need to find ways to go around that. And we're trying to do a lot of that, but I'm a big believer of these diverse teams. And when you have a diverse team at the top, then you also attract diverse talent at all layers of the organization. So that's also important. And this role modeling and showing that things are possible is
1: important. The CEOs in our portfolio that are women are lethal when it comes to recruiting diverse talent. Not just even women, yeah. but just diverse, not white tech guys. Yeah. They are lethal. Yeah. Because I think they, specifically with women, inspire them in, in such a unique way that like you or I just can't. Yeah, they're showing what's possible. Absolutely. They've laid out a blueprint through their career track Yeah, that I just think is so naturally inspirational.
0: Absolutely. It literally inspires talent to come join and to show, hey, there are no limits. You can do this.
1: Yeah, and I think a lot of companies now, especially with this talent war or whatever, are looking for purpose. How do you recruit with purpose or mission? And so a lot of companies try and find mission through their technology, which I think is kind of lazy in a lot of cases. And I don't know, maybe a lot of your team at birth was Super excited about low-code, no-code enterprise software. I doubt it. So there's a lot of other ways to recruit that are mission and purpose. One of them is showing what a woman can do and what a career path means and what success really means. Yeah, Like that is purpose. Yeah, That's a mission that someone can get behind. Another one is I believe that economic success, success in your job, is the number one avenue for upward mobility in our world, period. I believe that your career path is the most efficient way to change your life. That's a good mission. If you're at a growing company with a lot of freaking jobs on the horizon that people can go get promoted into, I think that can change your life. Yeah. I think that's a worthy mission. Yeah. And to that part,
0: I will do the plug. (laughs) Yeah. Give me the plug. Are you hiring? We are really hiring across all functions, engineering, but also... Big time and go to market from SDRs to CSMs to AEs to leads. Uh, I'm trying to add the next like 100 people in a couple of quarters. I'm doing on average three, four interviews a day myself to really double down on uh, bringing in talent. And uh, that's how important it is.
1: What's the best way to get a hold of you if you hear this?
0: LinkedIn and via via. What the hell is that? Oh, <laughs> a lot of people reach out to me through the network. But people uh, can mail me at uh, lacour at encore.com or at LinkedIn.
1: Never done this before. So I guess there's a first for everything, but we're jumping back on. And I said, I want you to come February 10th to this event. And you said, I want to see Mike Clavel again. It was the CRO of Stripe. And, yeah. and I said, you like that episode? And you said, I loved it. And the audience loved it. You want to just tell the story?
0: Yeah, I thought it was a great episode. Mike is such an accomplished CRO. I've been a fan for many, many years. But at the end of the episode, he was also talking about, in the context of grid, about things that he had to overcome in his life. And he was talking about that he lost his first wife to cancer and that he's married now again and started this Clayville Foundation. And honestly, I have a different but also a story with some similarities. Actually, in 2004, I actually got married and we went on a honeymoon and then went to Thailand. And while on our honeymoon, we unfortunately got hit by the big tsunami. Second Christmas day, December twenty-six, in 2004. And I lost my wife that day. And we were married for eight days. Nearly lost my life myself. Drowning. Yeah, 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 yeah. There are so many people of where we were lost their lives that day. And overall, in, at that time, 200,000 people lost their life because of that tsunami. And so, obviously, it was incredibly, incredibly hard. And it took me uh, many, many years to climb out of that. And we were talking about mental recovery. Uh, I had to do a lot of like mental and emotional recovery, obviously, heartbroken. And yeah, you go through all these phases, year one, year two, year three, yesterday was her birthday and this was 17 years ago. And yeah, luckily after a lot of crying and talking and being with friends and family and so on, I got slowly back on my feet after that happened. And. In that time, we actually also started a foundation. Uh, it's called the Lidika Foundation. And we built a school with the company she was working for in Sri Lanka to teach kids English and also IT, to give them a chance to have a better life. And the school is still running and it's amazing. I have to say right now, yeah, it took me a time, but luckily I then found a fantastic woman to who I'm married now. And we were talking about our kids earlier, so. Yeah. But it was brutal at the time. I can't,
1: I just, I'm really grateful you talk about it. Can I ask more questions? Yeah. How long did it take for you to make sense of something that's so random and tragic, devastating?
0: Yeah, well, you go through these phases Uh, year one was just survival. It was just like your world falls apart. And it was for me, uh, everything that we'd build up was gone in one day and without notice. And it's just incredible. So year one was like total survival. And I spent a lot of time with my parents and family and friends who helped me so much. And, and then year two, you know that you, you yourself are still alive, but then your whole sense of direction is gone. So for your life, you, you go like, okay, which direction? What am I going to do now? And then that took a couple of years. And then you go like, okay, can I ever be as happy again? And that was also a phase. And luckily, again, I, I met my, my wife and I'm very, very grateful for
1: that. That was like a five plus year process. Yeah.
0: yeah, yeah, with ups and downs. In the beginning, there were only downs. And then year after year, you get more days that are up. So you can almost like the the ratio of up days to down days and slowly, and then after a great day, you have a very bad day. And you gotta like also accept that. We already spoke about looking for the next thing or being in the present. That's also when I learned like, hey, this is a pretty bad day. Let's accept it. It's going to last only 24 hours. Then there will be a new day. So accept that you're in the present and that the present is now tough, but that it doesn't stay with you. And
1: do you now have perspective on bad days? Your worst day now, is really not so bad, is it?
0: It's not so bad. It's not so bad. I pride myself very lucky. I'm grateful for where I am. And yes... You at times, you get stressed, but it's all relative.
1: Why the foundation? And Mike did the same thing. What about the process? Is it a, a kind of a, like a tribute to her? Like, help me understand the why of the foundation. Both you and Mike did it.
0: Yeah, it's a tribute. It is also having like a bigger purpose and doing something good for the world. And she was very focused on like education and kids. So we felt that education is a great way to offer kids a better life and make themselves supportive. And we came to a conclusion quickly, like it's gotta be a school. And then we were thinking about where should we build this? We looked at India, Thailand, and Sri Lanka. Now Thailand had more money at the time. They were parts of... India, where the situation was really bad, Aceh as well, or Indonesia. But Sri Lanka was this place where we felt we could make a difference. And then with colleagues from her, we started building this, uh, this school and yeah, it's just been amazing. It's just a bigger purpose.
1: What an incredible story. Yeah. I'm like doing my absolute best not to cry right now. I, I yeah. um, Why do you hate sharing it besides the obvious? if I could be really personal, like, do your kids know this story?
0: I was talking to my wife that it's time to start telling the kids.
1: Yeah, yeah.
0: (laughs) So my daughter is, uh, I'm planning to tell her in the next like six months.
1: Yeah. Well, I I just appreciate it, man. I'll tell you, there's parts of these shows, actually Dan O'Connell, the Dialpad CRO, lost his father and he was explaining a story about how he'd be so proud of, what and who he was now. He was a CEO at the time, his dad. And there's a few episodes, that one, Mike, that so deeply hit home. Yeah, yeah. That just really resonate.
0: Yeah, and just to be clear, my, my oldest daughter, oh, my daughter's nine, and then I got two boys of uh, seven and four. So they're a little bit young. That's, I
1: mean, that's a, I don't know, that's. that's
0: but a, okay, again, I am very, very grateful to where I am right now and that I have the family.
1: Before I forget, last question. What does the word grit mean to you?
0: Grit is the biggest driver for achievement and success. Every person who is successful has grit because everybody had to like overcome obstacles. Everybody at one point had to stand up and try again. So that's the essential ingredient for success.
1: Philippe, thank you. Thank you
0: so much. Thanks for
1: having me. That's it. Thanks for listening. If you're just discovering the podcast, we have a lot more episodes with CROs from organizations like Snowflake, Twilio, Slack, LinkedIn, Box, etc. If you want to keep up or support the show, the best way to do so is by following us on Spotify, subscribing on Apple, and leaving a review. Thanks. Talk soon.